The epistle lesson for this third Sunday of Easter comes from the first letter of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and it's on page 863 of the Pew Bible. In this epistle lesson, the Apostle John reminds us who we are and how that affects our future hope and the way that we live now. And please stand as you are able for the reading of the epistle lesson. From 1 John 3, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Alleluia, Christ is risen. risen Alleluia. In 1992, there was a commercial that came out with the song, I Want to Be Like Mike. The star of the commercial was Michael Jordan, who was, at least at that time, the best basketball player on the planet. So uh, while while the song played, the commercial showed clips of Michael Jordan winning the NBA Finals, playing pickup games with little kids, and of course, drinking Gatorade. The commercial presented Mike as the greatest basketball player ever and just an all-around great guy. And the song, not so subtly, implanted the idea that every kid should want to be just like Mike. And then the words on the screen at the end of the commercial were even less subtle. It said, be like Mike, drink Gatorade. (laughs) And pretty much every young basketball player idolized Michael Jordan. They wanted to be just like Mike. And Gatorade cashed in. Someone somewhere is still swimming in the bucks they made off that commercial. It worked because kids, young basketball players, idolized Michael Jordan. They wanted to be just like him. And why not? If there is one basketball player you aspired to be like, at that time it was Michael Jordan. And we do this with all sorts of people, don't we? We idolize our favorite hockey players, our favorite rock stars, and those people on TV who take beat-up houses and make them look beautiful in 30 minutes. There are people in the world that really impress us. They might be celebrities, or they might be people we know. And we want to be just like them. So we dress like them. We try to be like them, walk like them, talk like them. And we even buy the stuff that we see them using. We idolize them, and oftentimes we do this without even knowing that we're doing this. Now, if there's one person that we really should idolize, who do you think that would be? If there's one person that we should desire to be just like, who is that person? Now, since we're in church, you probably won't be surprised when I tell you that person is Jesus. 
I suppose our natural tendency, and I hope that we're learning that our natural tendencies are not always good, I suppose our natural tendency is to think of this primarily in moral terms. That is, we should try to imitate Jesus' behavior. And this is true and good to an extent. Jesus is a good example. He didn't sin. That makes him the best example, right? But the danger, the biggest danger with using Christ as our example is that he might become only an example, and that would be really bad. Our natural tendency is to think that if we act like Christ, then we will become like him. But that doesn't really work. Changing our outward actions cannot and will not change our inward condition. No amount of trying really hard will make you not be a sinner anymore, just like no amount of Gatorade is going to turn a nine-year-old into Michael Jordan. It doesn't work. Now, this text from 1 John, it does talk about being like Jesus. But I want you to notice something very important. It's not a commandment. It's a promise. So let's consider this promise. We are God's children right now. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, the father, he was not our father, at least not initially. At first, he was the father of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is his only son. Initially, we did not have a father-child relationship with the father because we were enemies of God. We were hostile because the world is hostile to the father and also to the son. The world does not know him. And this is why the love of God is so remarkable. We were not the children of God. We were children of wrath. But in love, the Father gave his only Son to die for us. And it is because of this that we should be called children of God. It is by this remarkable love of the Father that he calls rebellious creatures his children. And then John has this simple but yet remarkable statement about that. He says, and so we are. By God's declaration, this becomes reality. He calls you his child, and so you are. God's word is powerful and authoritative. It's like, it's like a king pronouncing to a foreigner that he is now a citizen of his country. Before he wasn't a citizen, but then the king calls him a citizen, and so he is, just like that. And no one can refute it, because the king declared it. But with God, it's even stronger and more intimate. This is more than citizenship. This is the creator of heaven and earth calling you his child. It's a declaration of adoption. That's what it is. The highest authority in heaven and on earth calls you his child. Now that's as valid an adoption as there ever was. God declares it, and so it is. But the problem we encounter in the present time is that we don't experience what you think one would experience when adopted by the highest authority in the universe. Now all of creation, from the wind, to the earth, to the people on the earth, all of creation is subject to God, right? So you might think that his children would get a little more respect. 
And I, and I don't simply mean from the people around us. Sure, if everyone around us knew who we were, we would get the royal treatment. But the world did not recognize Jesus. They gave Jesus a criminal's treatment instead of the royal treatment. And if they did not recognize Jesus as the Son of God, they will certainly not recognize us as children of God. So, like our elder brother, we patiently endure whatever mistreatment may come our way. But even the non-human parts of the universe, you think about that, we would expect to get more respect from them too, because the weather, the plants, and even death itself is subject to God. If the weather knew who we were, we would expect it to not snow on our driveways. But it does, a lot, just like everywhere else. And if death knew who it was really dealing with, you would expect it to leave us alone. But it doesn't. Death still persecutes the children of God. So we don't experience everything you think we should as God's children. We are God's children now, most certainly. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. I want you to notice that statement. When he, that is Jesus, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. And this is the promise for the future. One of my favorite things as a pastor is when people, anybody, asks me about the stuff they've been thinking about. Now, I don't always know the answer, okay, but when I do, it's really convenient because then I know exactly what part of the scriptures should be taught. So I can take some portion of scripture and just stick it right there into the spot that someone's been thinking about, and it's pretty much my favorite thing. One of the things that people tend to ask quite a bit, especially around the time of death, either of themselves or someone close to them, is what we will be like in heaven. They also ask what heaven will be like, and we'll deal with that sometime too. But the question this text answers is what we will be like in heaven. And John's answer is really simple. We will be like him. That is, Jesus. And I'll give you just one caveat. We will not be exactly like Jesus in every way, and that's because Jesus is both God and man. He has a divine nature and a human nature. We will not become gods like Jesus, but we will be perfect humans like him. So whatever can be said of Jesus' perfected human nature will also be true of us. So then the question becomes, what is Jesus' human nature like? We got a glimpse of this in the gospel lesson from Luke 24. It's this scene on the evening of Jesus' resurrection. It's the same event we considered last week from the Gospel of John, but you'll notice that different authors have a little bit different perspective on things. In Luke, he has this really strong emphasis on the physicality of Jesus' resurrection. Now, John does too, but Luke includes some rather interesting details. So many of the, many of the disciples, more than just the small group we usually think of, but the large group, like whole bunch of people, they were gathered together. Now, they'd heard a few reports of Jesus' resurrection, and a few of them had actually seen Jesus, but the larger group apparently wasn't convinced yet that Jesus had really risen from the dead. 
I mean, even though Jesus taught them beforehand that he would die and then rise again from the dead, it's just really hard to believe it until you see it. So when Jesus stood among them and said, Peace to you, they thought he was a spirit. Even when they saw him, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. So Jesus showed them his hands and feet and invited them to touch him. He said, Touch me and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then while they're still trying to wrap their brain cells around this, Jesus does the most mundane and ordinary thing. But he does it to prove his physicality to them, and Luke records it to prove it to to us as readers. And I think the scene is kind of funny. Jesus asked them for some food. So they gave him a piece of fish, and then he ate it in front of them. And I think it's funny to imagine the scene. I mean, nobody else is eating. It's just Jesus. So here's this group of maybe 50 or 100 people is my guess. And I imagine they're all just standing there watching him eat. I mean, what else would you do if you were there? You just thought this guy was dead. And they probably don't say anything, but I think we can guess what they're thinking. They're thinking, are you sure he's not a ghost? So they watch him take this bite of fish, and they're watching to see if it just like slides through him and falls on the floor. But it doesn't. Jesus just eats this fish like a normal flesh-and-bone person would. And it's about the most amazing thing they've ever seen. Now, it's pretty close to the most mundane detail in all of the Bible, but it's also so interesting. And Luke records it for us because it is the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead in the flesh. And then we remember what John said about us being like him when he appears. When we think about heaven and what we will be like, the most basic thing, but perhaps the most difficult thing to believe, is that we will have flesh and bones just like Jesus. And you know, not any flesh and bones, but this flesh and these bones. The flesh and bones that you're sitting there with right now are the flesh and bones that you will have in heaven. And in times of death, whether our death or the death of a loved one, this is the most comforting thing. God has not abandoned this body. That very same body that we put in a casket and lower into the ground. When Jesus appears on the last day, he is going to raise that body back to life. And we shall be like him. Now for now, in the present time, we know that the soul who falls asleep in Jesus, that soul is with Jesus now. And this is good. We comfort ourselves with this. But it gets better, even better that soul is going to be reunited with the body and Jesus is going to raise that body back to life and Jesus is going to transform that body into his perfect image. We will have flesh and bone again. But we won't be like we are now. We will be like Jesus is now. Perfect and incorruptible. Our bodies will no longer be subject to decay. We will not get sick. We will not die. We will not even feel the pains of hunger. 
But we will, apparently, still get to eat, because eating is great. Heaven is often described as a feast, and you can't have a feast without food. So our bodies will be transformed, and our souls will be transformed too. You think about this, we will not sin anymore, and we won't want to sin either. Imagine that, if you can. You probably can't, because for our entire lives, we've all wanted to sin. But we won't want to anymore. We will no longer feel guilt over our past sins, and we won't have that struggle that we all experience when we really want to sin, but we know we shouldn't. Even the temptation to it will be gone. Because when he appears, we shall be like him. Dear saints, this is our blessed hope. But we still live in the present, don't we? That means we, we, we struggle and we suffer through sin, temptation, and death. But God calls us to look ahead. He teaches us to consider what is coming in the future. And this is very much contrary to the way the world teaches us to think. I've been thinking about this for a little while now, and I'm starting to wonder if this might be the biggest difference between the way a Christian thinks and the way the world thinks. I need to think about this a little bit more, and you can help me with that if you would like to. But the idea is this. The prevailing philosophy of the world, at least in our Western culture, is that we should live in the present. Maybe you've heard that before. The slogan is, live in the now, right? And it almost sounds irrefutable, because what other moment can you live in? We are always in the present moment. But the subtext of the slogan is that we really shouldn't worry about the past or the future. So there's no guilt over past sins, and there's no worry about what comes next. So you do what makes you feel good in the moment, Now, one of the, I guess this is totally tangential, Uh, one of the basic things this explains is the epidemic of credit card debt, Uh, but really, it results in much more serious sins, too. We end up making selfish decisions in every aspect of life, and the world teaches us to justify it by saying, I'm just living in the moment. The Christian version of this is, I'll repent later. Now, that's not really Christian at all, but... I'm afraid we often think this way. So we make a practice of sinning, at least for a time, until the Holy Spirit draws us back to repentance. But John says that no one who abides in him, that is Christ, no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. Now that doesn't mean that we never fall into sin. Of course we do. And John knows that too. That's why he said earlier that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And that's why he said, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The point is that the child of God who abides in Christ does not make a practice of sinning. We don't live for the moment. We don't live as if there are no consequences for the future. Instead, the scriptures always teach us to live with an eye to the future. This should make us consider the consequences of sin, the impact that our thoughts, words, and deeds have on ourselves and our neighbors around us. But it should also give us the greatest comfort, this eye toward the future. 
Because remember, we have the most glorious promises for the future. And the greatest of them is simply this, that when he appears, we shall be like him. Dwell on that and trust in that, because this is promised to you as surely as Jesus himself rose from the dead. We are God's children now, and this is good. God has adopted us as his own, and he has promised us every good thing. So we have this glorious and comforting promise that when he appears, we shall be like him. Amen. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.